millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we got a friend in common, actually. You're a good pals with Jokey, right? Oh, you're mates with Jokey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just numbed to the scene in Scotland and stuff. Good guy. Yeah, I love that guy. He's a, he's a good mate of mine. Are you not, um, you know, the godfather to his kid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, um, <laughs> he asked me if I could be, and we decided the Southern Hemisphere godfather to his kid, <laughs> which I thought was nice. Yeah, it's sweet. You know, because I'm obviously, um, I, I was living in Edinburgh for a while, and we became really good friends. And I, I haven't met Connell yet, but um, I'm really excited to meet him. When was the last time you were over here? It's been a wee while. Uh, it would have been, well, we, I, we didn't go to Scotland, but um, for the uh, Brixton Academy gig. Which would have been start of last March? Yes, which was uh, March the 6th. And it seems like it was a lot of people's last gig. Yeah, it feels like I was waiting for the can before the storm, but I imagine it was chaos. The chaos before the storm. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an amazing show for us. And like, that's a great venue and to sell it down and and the fact that we we were able to release a um so we recorded the the show and um and we uh, had some video footage to it and stuff and released the live at Brixton Record uh, which was a pretty amazing and special thing to have not only because it was the last show before Brixton but I mean so before COVID but I guess in this crazy year where you can't be playing live shows, which is like the main way that a band would market themselves. We were able to release a live album, which was kind of super special and get people excited for live music again. I mean, you know, you're speaking about the videos there as well. When you watch them back, you kind of get the sense of it being a moment, like a culmination of a series of things. You get that feeling from it. If we look back to like, say, Hell's End, what had you learned in the period between that and Brixton? as with a musician and a person that allowed you to get to that point. It's funny with the whole, um, you know, when Hills End came out in our first EP, we were, I was maybe 23 years old 
you know, still pretty young, not crazy young, but still pretty young. And I'm 31 now. So it's been a journey, I guess, like any part of life, you know, you pick up, it's all the little increments and little things you learn along the way. You know, I'll tell you one thing, we don't, we don't drink as much before, before shows anymore. <laughs> um, there was a few disasters early on, but uh, you can kind of do that a little bit when you're only playing in front of 75 to 100 people, you know. Um, but when, uh, when you've got 5,000 people or, you know, we're about to set our alley pally, which is 10,000 people, there's a lot more on the line. And, and, it's, and, I, and I'm glad that we got that out of our system early because we all take it super seriously now before gigs and, you know, and even the fact that the set, you know, is, is probably 75 minutes now or even longer after a long call. Oh, so. stamina. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I played it when, I, when we played the other day, I was like, I definitely wasn't gig fit. <laughs> I was like exhausted after it, just having to like, just concentrating so much. What's the last conversation before you go on stage at a show like Brixton? What's the kind of atmosphere? What's the vibe? <laughs> oh, mate, we're always, we're, we're just talking shit, to be honest. <laughs> we, we don't do any of this group huddle kind of stuff. We go, we're, we're just, nah, we're just like laughing, making dumb jokes. Uh, we're not, we're normally having a bit of a laugh because we, we've got a thing now where we like to pick a walk on song, which before we've, we've like, we have picked actually, uh, a, one of our walk on songs was actually the, the original demo of life is a game of changing. Like the first kind of initial idea that was written, there was a song called, I don't want to get lost. And, um, so yeah, we look, we like walk and we, and we used to walk onto a mates of ours, um, confidence man. They um they did a remix of for now so like we like to walk onto like remixes that our friends have done of our own songs and uh, stuff like that so we normally kind of just like I don't know have it or, or or we pick um or we pick random songs actually and so we're normally just kind of having a laugh dancing around to that but um it's never it's never that we're never that serious before we go on stage I think and I think that's a good thing obviously you have to be ready and stuff for it but you also have to be relaxed. And no matter how big a gig is, that you treat it like it's just any other show. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no, I don't think there's any point in like kind of being nervous or or like wigging yourself out at all because it doesn't really help the performance. Just so that it stays like natural on stage. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I've played these songs hundreds of times before. So, you know, and even like if you make a mistake, who cares? It's not even like the biggest thing in the world. You know, it can be a bit embarrassing or something. But like at the end, afterwards, you're probably just going to laugh about it. I made a pretty big mistake the other day on stage and I was really nervous. But after I did it, I was like, well, it can't get worse than this. So I am. Um. <laughs> so then I was kind of not nervous anymore. That's a pretty uh, positive way to look at it. That's a good way to look at it. Kind of use it to feel you. Well, you know, there's a lot of important things going on in the world and you playing a couple of wrong notes or, or fucking up a song <laughs> isn't really the beat. It's not, you know, it's not, yeah. not going to end poverty or something like that. Like it's it's not that important. When you were saying, you know, you used to walk on to the demo version of Life is a Game of Changing, what was that? Was that just the beat? Was that a kind of earlier version of the beat? Um, no. It was it was the middle eight. If you're gonna be there, are you gonna dance from the start? I don't know. It was literally a song that only had that part in it. But it sat, but it had this um and just loop it. No, it had a really long electronic intro, and then that came in. I, that, I actually have to find it. I haven't listened to it for a while because since the song has come out, we stopped doing that. 
even though it would probably be cooler to do it and then play the song in the set and people who know the song will probably actually recognize it now because when we used to do it the song hadn't been released so people didn't know what it was so did you have that moment that kind of bridge before you had the rest of the song yeah yeah that was written like um uh when mace and i were living in botany bay which was um quite uh, a couple of years before the album was released maybe three years and then uh when i was living in edinburgh i wrote verses and the chorus of that song and then we worked out that that we could join it with that initial idea that uh, Mason and I had worked on in Botany, for, uh, you know, a couple of years prior, which is what we do. We do that a, that a lot with music. I mean, you kind of, I remember before the last album, you kind of went into the vault and you've got this bank of songs. What's that kind of number up to at the moment? The kind of bank that you can pull from for ideas? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> it drained, it drained, it's, it's drained quite a bit after doing <laughs> um, three albums in the, in the EP. Cause that's like, you know, you've released 40 songs or whatever, but we're always writing and we're, and we're always working on stuff. But like, I've still got, a, I've still got a list, just my personal list of about, I think it's up to about maybe 60 or 70 songs at the moment. Wow. Yeah. But you know, it's kind of changed a bit. A lot of them now, are, cause I've been doing a little bit more electronic music. Um, a lot of them are kind of, normally normally only consists of like maybe one or two melodies in it and it's more like energy based musically but recently because in COVID I've had a lot of time to uh work on production and you know muck around with synths and and do a lot of that kind of stuff which I've been really just really loving also recently just kind of focusing on really getting back to core songwriting which is kind of what we're best at and, uh, you know, getting back to basics and making sure that um, a song is kind of uh, completed in its rawest form, you know, that kind of cliche of everyone saying that you want to be able to perform a song on an acoustic guitar or a piano and only when it's truly amazing in that form um, is it really ready to to be given the attention and the love of production. Yeah, it's like Cobra Kane, you know, on the last record. That's one of the most electronic songs on it, but you could still perform that song on an acoustic guitar if you wanted to. That's right. It's yeah, and it sounds really it sounds really good on a on a piano. Have you performed it on a piano before? We did an instrumental version of it actually with uh, piano, acoustic guitar, um, drums, and violin. Our mate Jenny McCullough, who joined us for those COVID safe gigs that we did, and we opened up the set actually with um, Cobra Kane acoustic. Uh, instrumental do you it's interesting you were saying that you know you'll write some of the stuff you've been writing more was about you know you have a couple melodies and it was a little bit more electronic and a lot of it was about the feel and the energy of it when you write songs in that way does it teach you anything when you then go back to writing them in the more traditional sense um yes well i've i've i'm constantly always experimenting with songwriting you know and i i've spoken a lot about when i was younger kind of coming from a country background and and Mason and I kind of both stem from that and writing songs and that were very lyric based and, and whatnot. But what, one thing I've been trying to do, I guess, with the, which is fun that you can do with the electronic stuff, but it doesn't always work or you have to, um, is, so I'll finish saying I do this, a like tangent, <laughs> but is that you have to, you can write songs in their electronic format 
with just one or two ideas and the big energy that um, beats and production bring, which can really, really, really be helpful for bringing an e- like an energy and what type of melody you're going to write to a song. If you've already got like a um, a reverb kind of high intensity electronic beat or something like that going on with a kind of pulsing bass line, synth, um, synth bass line or something. And you're like, okay, I'm in this mood. So this is, you know, you're not going to write a country song over that, which, which is interesting. And then if you write maybe five or six of s- songs that uh, ha- maybe have a similar energy, it is very easy to grab the stems and join lots of those songs. But what I've been doing is, Joining those songs, I just was working on this song with the guys on the weekend where it was like three songs that I've joined, but it didn't work as well as I wanted to for it to sound cohesive. So what we've done is we've taken the melodies, which are really great melodies, but brought them down to just the piano and voice and kind of brought it into a more Beatles-esque vibe, which is such a crazy uh, way of writing. To be honest, it's not the best way of writing. <laughs> I'm kind of working that out, but it is interesting. And you and you do come up with um, a combination of melodies that you probably wouldn't normally get to, especially when they've stemmed from like high int- intensity electronic music and then make their way back into <laughs> into a piano ballad. I think that's, I remember reading an interview with the Pet Shop Boys once, I believe, and they spoke about that where, they believe that if it's a truly great melody, you can strip it back to just the vocal and one instrument. And that's how you can really get a sense of whether it's going to work before you bring in all the other totally. stuff. You're kind of just doing it in reverse a little bit. Yes. Yes, that's right. But I'm realizing now, you know, and I've heard other producers say it and some really big producers who like, who talk about they won't even touch a computer until they know that the song is amazing. You know, they won't even give it give it the that energy of production, um, which I have kind of done in reverse. But I've also learnt a lot along the way because I've always been so songwriter um, based, and I've learnt a lot. And really, and I want to move into production into the future. So it, I guess it was a part of my skills, you know, personally that I kind of needed to work on. And I'm glad I have because I haven't forgotten how to write a song. How um, you know, and you said you had those three ideas that you joined together. When it comes down to them individually, when you're writing them for the first time, will you try and complete the idea? Will you try and have the full thought come out or will you come back to it over various sessions? Um, you definitely come. Well, a lot of the ideas, so this is the way the three of us normally work. We will bring these ideas to a session, whether it's, I'm obviously just talking about my personal experience, but it is similar for all of us. So if Mason has a song that has two or three ideas in it, that maybe isn't completely finished or Tommy has a few has um, voice memos or, or basically songs at the same vibe. And then we all come together and really um, go under the microscope then with it. And, um, and that's when, you know, it's the beauty of collaboration, which is why lots of pop artists or um, solo artists do a lot of songwriting sessions. We're lucky with DMAs that we don't have to do that all the time. Um, even though we, we have started doing that over the last year, writing with other artists, it's not necessarily for DMAs, but we ha- kind of, ha- you know, we have our own collaboration within the band and it's a really unique um, and beautiful thing. When you go into those sessions, you know, and you're writing with other people, do you learn different things about your own process? Oh yeah, every time. 
And when you're working with different singers and, and people who write um, different genres of music, it's a really amazing um, experience. Uh, I had one of those sessions recently with a dance producer called What's So Not. It stemmed as just a session that him and I were working on and then we got Tommy in to sing and then Tommy brought some parts and then we got Mason to bring his parts in and now we're releasing it tomorrow actually, which is um, super exciting and it's kind of got a bit of a, a bit of a, um, the prodigy, I guess, esque kind of stuff in it. Yeah. Nice. You're a big streets guy as well, aren't you? Oh, t- t- Tommy is. Oh, Tommy is, okay. Yeah, I'm more of a uh, Underworld Chemical Brothers kind of lad. I then did you not come on to did you ever come on to Underworld when you were playing in Scotland like Nux, Born Slippy? Oh no, I don't think so. No, but I do remember. I I remember watching them uh, when after we played. Um, oh, what's that festival? Lowlands Festival yeah. in Holland, and that's when I first saw them live, and that was um, kind of one of the first moments when I decided that I wanted to learn and um, and get into uh, you know more electronic side of production. Do you think about that music differently after you see it live? Because it can be such like a clubby type thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't really, uh, I would try and listen to lots of, and also there's lots of types of, lots of different types of electronic music. I'm not particularly a huge fa- ha- um, fan of like particularly housey stuff. Um, I don't mind it. Like I like, I like some deep house and like stuff like that. But there's definitely, um, you know, particular genres that I, that I prefer. and. You know, lots of the underworld kind of ravey stuff I, I really, really dig. It's interesting to think about, you know, we're talking there about the live again, when it comes back to Brixton, when was it, I mean, when you listen back to that live record or you watch the videos from it, does it kind of spark memories that you otherwise wouldn't have had? Like, does it remind you of things that you wouldn't have if you didn't have it recorded in such a way? Well, yeah, I guess mainly in the sense of there was maybe a part of us that had was starting to take for granted live touring, particularly um, our gigs in the UK. Not that we were taking it for granted, though, obviously always super special, but but I just like like any job, you kind of get a bit fatigued and, you know, we're a pretty hard touring band. Um, we kind of hadn't really stopped for maybe five or six years touring, you know, and, and we'd been consistently releasing records on the two-year cycle, which kind of only gives you a couple of months off before you release your next record. And I will never take that for granted again after COVID because uh, watching those gigs and the energy and, and, um, and playing live and stuff like that, it's, it's, you realize how important. I think, you know, lots of people, I've spoken to a lot of musicians like this because you can, you know, touring can be pretty, pretty hectic and um, hard on when you're missing your family and, and your relationships and stuff like that. But, but yeah it's also your main form of income and um, there's those really special moments and I just can't wait to have them again in the UK in particular because the crowds are so good over there for us. Do you think you would have come to that realisation anyway had COVID not happened? Um, I think I think so. I think uh, as I'm maturing and, gr- and growing up, I definitely appreciate them a lot more. I guess it's easy when you're a bit younger and life feels like it's going really fast and do you know what I mean? And, and you don't really stop and think about that. But as you kind of mature a little bit more, you realize how special those kind of moments are and you stop taking bits for granted, I think, naturally. Are you a bit, once, I mean, once you have that revelation, are you a little bit more in the moment too? Are you able to kind of take stock of them while they're happening rather than just afterwards? Oh, yeah. I'm much more in the moment. Yeah. With, um, with kind of everything that I do, not just music stuff, 
you know, just even watch watching a band, you know, because you like I bet a lot of people didn't think that maybe DMAs was going to be their last gig for like for such a long time when they were watching that. And yeah, I definitely definitely think about that a bit. And I and I and I think about it when I'm in sessions writing with people. And um, yeah, all facets of my life. I guess that's a thing of COVID. Is it's allowed people to stop and slow down and rethink some some um, facets of their life that they may that may have otherwise been rushing by them. I mean, did Edinburgh do a similar thing for you when you moved there? When you kind of completely changed yeah, your totally. surroundings in that way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my partner Haley and I we like to do that quite a bit. Um, she's a songwriter as well, and um, I f- feel like it's it's really good to to move where you live. And uh, to meet new people, and because it's, I think it's really conducive to um, perspective, and which is which helps you with your songwriting. I think. Had had you lived in Melbourne before as well? You're saying you just moved there? I uh, not really. I, I was here for a couple of months before I moved to Edinburgh, but no, I've always lived in Sydney. So, um, and then after we came back from Edinburgh, um, we were kind of like, oh, we're not really ready to go back to Sydney yet. Um, so I've moved to Melbourne here, where I'm. And I don't think we're going to go back. I think um, Melbourne's a pretty... Have you ever been? No, I've never had the privilege of going to Australia. So far away. It's like other side yeah. of the world from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, but it's, it's a pretty amazing city. I would kind of imagine like uh, I'd compare Melbourne and Sydney to maybe Glasgow and Edinburgh. Ah, okay. Um, as in they're, they're just two great cities. But I guess um, Sydney is the more... A little bit, it's like the, the tourist hub. It's super. It's aesthetically very beautiful, but it's a little more boring and corporate and uh, and money driven. Where like a Glasgow and Melbourne has you know amazing live music and bars and and stuff. And it's a bit more grungy and you know it's a bit more lively and something a little bit more raw about it. Yeah, that's right. And it and it breeds creativity. It's also it gets bloody cold down here. Obviously, not compared to Scotland cold, but. <laughs> Um, Australia, it gets like Australia cold down here, you know, in the winter. How cold is Australia cold? Oh, like, Haley, how, how cold does it get here in winter? You six? Lower than six. That's pretty cold, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, I, re- I reckon probably, probably down to four, maybe. Man. I reckon it could. Maybe not during the day, but at night. But it, it, either way, it's cold enough and it keeps, it keeps people indoors. And I think that breeds creativity, you know, as opposed to hanging out, doing, um, Sit up some Bondi Beach or some shit. <laughs> well, boredom always breeds creativity, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. That was like you were saying. What was the pub you used to stay above um, a few years back? We we're speaking about it at the start. Oh, uh, we used to. Um, we used to be near the Lord Gladstone. Yeah, I mean, was it? Uh, well, was that the one that was kind of slightly out of town? Oh, sorry, no, no, that was the Botany Bay Hotel. Yeah, was that kind of a similar thing when you were there? When you kind of a little bit further out the city, you know, where you're in there, about you kind of just stay indoors and write songs. Yeah, that was actually. I remember doing like the time and money demo there, and and a whole bunch, a lot of songs actually. Maybe even like the first uh, Cobra, uh, not the first Cobra Cane, but a version. The first we tried to do Cobra Cane on our first album actually, and it, it really didn't come into fruition till the Glow, which is pretty funny. But yeah, that was a similar vibe. Also, we were pretty. We didn't have that much money back then, and I was living with Mason and and, um, and uh, we were lucky enough because we were mates with the chef. And it was a new pub, and he had all these vouchers that they were hand, hand, um, handing out to people around the um, 
around the area where you you come in just to get people into the pub and you get a five dollar meal, yeah. which is like, you know, what's that like? Pretty much two pound fifty for a pub meal. Wow, like a big chicken sitzel or something. <laughs> anyway, that was, it was like just trying to get people into the pub. Anyway, he gave us like a hundred of them. So you live <laughs> so like we just, Yeah, yeah, we were eating like pub meals for like every meal of the day and stuff. <laughs> um, which was kind of cool, but we didn't really, that worked for us because we didn't have much money. And, um, and you know, so to get into town, it was 30 bucks. It'd be like 30 or 35 bucks each way. Um, so you'd already spend 60 bucks before you'd even get into the pub, you know. So um, we definitely just spent a lot of time there. Oh, and we lived above a pub. So How, uh, how long after you lo- uh, moved to Melbourne? Do you start to see it in your songwriting and start to see it impact your creativity? Oh, straight away. Straight away, wow. Yeah, straight away, I reckon. The first, when that first two months that we were here, yeah, the song hasn't been released yet, but it's called, um, there's a song called We Are Midnight, which um, was like I wrote um, pretty much straight away as I moved down here. And same with Edinburgh. Uh, Hello Girlfriend was mainly Mason's song, but the, I'd written the chorus. Um, in Edinburgh, and that was I wrote it in the first five minutes that we that we moved in there. <laughs> and I, I think this, yeah, you know, it's like the first thing I did. Do you do you feel that before you start writing? Can you feel the creativity coming in that way, and the kind of urge to write? Um, sometimes I had it. I had it a while ago um, with another song that hasn't been released yet, which I'm really excited about. And I was lying in bed thinking how I I played the song at a party in front of someone I admire. Didn't really, and I was like, "Why the fuck did I pick that song?" And I was trying to think of what song I should have picked, and then I couldn't really think of one. And then so I started thinking, "It's about one o'clock in the morning, lying in bed," and um, and then I was like, "What type of song do I wish I had written?" And then I started singing a melody in my head, and then I came out and wrote it. That's that's a moment when you feel like that, but I don't get them as much as often now because I've kind of fallen into a bit of a nine to five format with songwriting. That's discipline though. Like if you sit down nine to five every day, you're guaranteed to have ideas. That's right. That's right. Do the ideas differ in any way though when you like compare them to the ones that just come out randomly at like one in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Well, those ones like the one I was referring to before, you normally finish most of the song there and then. Where um, a lot of the nine to five ones kind of they just a lot they kind of take a little bit longer for me sometimes, but they're normally not as good. I I have noticed that with an idea, if it doesn't start flowing really instantly, there's a reason for it. No, that's not that's not completely true. There's been heaps of um, ideas that we've resurrected. They're really great melodies, but they just haven't found a proper home yet. Do they get resurrected when you take them into the band, though? Is it maybe like when you get the other guys involved they kind of get re-energized a little bit or they're able to add their own spin on it that's that that's exactly it particularly when tommy starts singing it uh one thing you know and we kind of all do this together but I'll, we'll bring an idea through and and um mason will alter a melody um but also he loves altering he's really great with chords so can put some really different cool chord combinations forward to songs and um and as soon as Tommy starts singing a song, he naturally just puts his own energy onto it, um and his own kind of vibe. And whether that's me bringing it to the, them to or Mason bringing it to us, a similar result, or or Tommy bringing an idea to me and Mason, 
it's a similar result happens. Would you ever, you know, when you were writing those ideas, would you ever think about how they sound with his voice? Is that ever in your mind? Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a um, I had a, about a year there where I would only write in Tommy's key, <laughs> uh, which was which was interesting because I would sing them in his key, which is normally um, like a fifth higher than my voice, or sometimes a seventh higher than where I sing. It kind of worked for me sometimes, except for when I'd have to send the demo over. Though I started using auto-tune on my demo, which helps a bit more getting the idea across. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so if you hear my voice and I sound like a dying cat because I'm singing completely out of my range, <laughs> and then um, some people hear them and go, I don't know if that's a good song, um, Johnny. And then um, Tommy sings it, and then they realize that there's something special actually in there. But I've tried to stop that a bit. I've tried, I've tried to go back to just writing in my key and then transposing. I mean, again, is there a diff? Is there a difference in the ideas when you're approaching it with that framework in mind that you're going to write a song in this key when you're putting that limitation on yourself? Um, yeah. Well, like I was saying before, I just think it's really important to keep, you know, to to, to try stuff like that, and um, you know, to try and write songs too low for you or too high for you, or you know, and, and it's especially. Sorry, I take that back. It's mainly if you're writing for another singer. If you're writing, obviously, if I was the singer in the band, I w- obviously wouldn't do that. Actually, that's not true either. I take that back because you could uh, you could write a melody that you wouldn't normally write because you're singing too high for yourself, and it would actually become quite unique. And then you realize that it's too high for yourself, so you bring it down a fifth or a tone or whatever like that, and then it probably would could still come into its own light. I know someone is. As well, you know, when you're just reaching for it and you're kind of, it's just that with your reach and you're kind of just getting your fingertips on it. You hear that, I think, a little bit sometimes. Like that feeling, like that yeah. excitement. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's a funny one. You know, you were saying you were going into those writing sessions with other people. Are you ever writing for their voice again? Like in, in the same way that you think about Tommy's voice, where you think about someone else's voice when you're in those sessions? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I try and, one thing I do, I've been doing a lot actually, and I think I used to do naturally when I was a kid, but I've been doing a lot is I imagine um, the person being on stage and singing it to a crowd. So like, I know like it's safe. Um, Just so you can get the feeling of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would imagine like uh, if we're playing a song and um, like you've, you're playing the chords for the intro and then it hits apart. And then like, I'd imagine kind of Tommy singing it to a festival or something like that and imagine myself being in the crowd and what would I want to hear if I was in the crowd watching a band and what note would I want to hear come out or, you know, um, yeah, that kind of thing. And I, and I've been doing that quite a bit with artists. Um, and if they're different art type of artists, if I imagine being in the crowd, watching them and going, what would blow me away right now? What type of melody or, what kind of energy would you ever do that when you're uh, constructing a beat as well oh yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. lots of beats that i kind of make um i imagine them as a as like a walk-on song or as as um if a set was um a dma set was opening and all the lights were down and then a crazy electronic beat kind of came on or something like that what does that kind of influence more does it influence the textures or the structure of it like the arrangement um no no, it just sets the tone of the energy 
of 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 basically the biggest part of the song. It's what I find. If you start writing a song, which I do do a lot, I was doing it this morning actually, um, and had quite an ag- aggressive drum beat that had a really big energy to it, and then you start writing chords to it and singing, but most of the time, not most of the time, but a lot of the time, that's going to be the biggest moment of of the song in some regards. You know, if you start a song with just pads and a vocal, and then it builds up and the bass comes in and then and then and then there's a pre-chorus and then by the time you and then when you hit the first chorus you bring in that initial energy that you wanted that's going to be the same emotion that i guess the listeners feeling or hearing as you had when you were making it so like one thing i'll i'll do is i'll kind of create quite a big beat um and build a song idea on top of it and then just mute the beat and then mute the bass and then mute everything except for maybe the acoustic and the vocal and then try and build up to something to that um to the pinnacle i guess and we've we've kind of come back this a few times it's this idea of like constructing a moment like every like individual part of a song whether it be you know the first verse the bridge or the chorus it has to be a moment at what point do you start thinking about the role of the individual moments playing the song overall or even playing the record overall I think I think some songs I think about moments I do, which I think are really important. I definitely thought about that um, when when we were doing something like the pre-chorus um, to Game of Changing, especially because it goes from like a fifth to a fourth chord, so it's not on the tonic at all. So there's that anticipation that oh, I want for you to be to see you know that kind of vibe, um, and then you get the release of um, Mason's melody, which is the riff you know, and you really get that release. So I'm definitely thinking about like that, but then I won't be, I won't be thinking about that really writing a song like step up the morphine. Then when I played it, when I first played step up the morphine to Tommy, um, and then I had that chord change where it says, sometimes I wonder why we bother at all. Um, he'll be the one he's Tommy's really good with that going. That's a moment like we need to make that a thing. And he and he was the one who kind of picked that um, that point out and um, highlighted it in that song. And he's got a really great ear for that. Then once again, it just comes back to the three of us collaborating, I guess. What happens after he points that out? Where does it go from there? Uh, and then we try and structure, I guess, the other parts to kind of fl- flow into that moment the, where the lyrics started. That's a that's the that's a big thing of coming back to. Is um, and I guess they are moments in themselves, but having those lyrics, having really great lyrics, can push a song along so much further. Like it doesn't even have to be the most the craziest melody, you know. Which I think a lot of people forget is that they're always trying to think of writing really big melodies, but sometimes a melody doesn't even have to really move at all if the lyrics are brilliant. Yeah, you need both though. They can't. Though you can't have one without the other. That's right. And well, you can. But it, um, you know, not, maybe people won't like it as much. <laughs> or, you, you know, uh, which happens a lot. I do it all the time, which, which isn't good. And that's why when you do pre-production and, and you gain to the nitty-gritty of, of your song before it's released, you should have thought about all these, all these parts, I think. When you're, you know, when you're writing a song lyrically, is it a case of, Will each line inspire the one that follows? Does it kind of take on a momentum like that, or do they kind of come sporadically? Um, depends how 
how strong the idea is, I think. For example, Step Up, like I knew it was a, it was a tribute to my, to my late grandmother and I knew about that. And, I, and then in, in the air, I knew it was about, you know, kind of letting go and missing someone who had travelled to the other side of the world. So you kind of know what the lyrics are about. You know, you can write them um, kind of more specifically, but that's, that's another thing. If, if you're writing a song like a lot of dance music is done um, on energy, you know, and vibe, if the lyrics don't have a direct meaning, that's why I guess a lot of dance music are just about like love and feeling good or have, um, you know, almost subtle uh, re- drug references that overlap with feelings of love and stuff like that because that's kind of the energy that those songs have. If you have a song that was already written and then in, as, as a, almost like a folk or country song that was really super lyric-based, doesn't have to be folk or country, but then the dance music is put on top, you can definitely tell uh, when a song's done like that as opposed to the other way around. Would you ever flip it? Like, Would you ever try and write a beat with the feeling of something really intimate in mind? And then could you try and write a folk song with the kind of broader, more... The, the kind of more uh, raw emotions that would primarily more be associated with what produces dance music. Have you ever flipped it in that way? Oh yeah, I have totally. Not not in a some, uh, something that I've been working on for the next record. I've kind of done that in that in that regard. I guess we kind of like we realize there's just no right or wrong answer to writing a song, is there? It's um you know there's so many different ways of doing it. One thing I've been doing recently actually is is just trying to read a bit more. This is amazing. I'll get I'll get a page and a half into a book and I'll instantly be so inspired to write the song. It's actually that's a I reckon that's a good one. Is it can you see exactly what you're latching onto after that page and a half? Do you know what you're tapping into that's gonna make you want to create? Oh yeah, totally. And normally it's um it, it, it will be just like an adjective, the way that someone's just like described something that you've never, you know, never thought of before or something like that. Yeah. Kind of yeah, giving a new perspective on it. In the same way that might happen that would happen, you know, if you brought the song to the band. It's just this idea of constantly refreshing that perspective. Same reason you move as well. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you very much, man. I enjoyed that. Hey, oh, good. I kind of felt like I was rambling a bit. I tend to do that. That's what you want in a podcast, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. No, that is what you want. <laughs> That's yeah. when you get to the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramble. No, I was saying, I was saying some stuff I've never really thought about before, which is nice. You can, you can go and tackle every single facet of songwriting, like. Not every single facet, but from writing poetry and lyrics to writing a song on acoustic, electric, or over or producing stuff. You know, what I mean, you can you can start at different 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 points, but at the end, of, by the time this track's finished, they're all all those um, all those parts are super important. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.